It has begun. It's Geek Top 5! Yay! The world's top podcast used to determine the safety of Earthrealm. I'm Jesse. I'm Graham. And we're here to bring you the top five things that you need to know if you call yourself a geek. So, coming in right at number five, a little more details coming out telling us about the Star Trek show that we're totally not super desperately waiting to hear every bit of information we can about. Can't wait. This was a, an interview with Brian Brian Fuller? Yeah, but he's the showrunner for the new series, right. as well as American Gods and a million other TV shows that we can't wait to watch. So uh, he's sort of our TV J.J. Abrams, we hope. Yeah. Larval form. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, he's already got Hannibal under his belt and uh, Pushing Daisies, both of which have um, sizable, if still somewhat cultish, fan bases. But I think that sort of works with these two shows, since they're going to be on non-traditional markets like american gods is going to be on stars i believe and uh the star trek series is going where no tv show has gone before to a cbs all access streaming service yeah so to a lot of people's BitTorrent clients but <laughs> good luck to them with that uh, in any case though he is coming out sort of addressing some of the rumors that are going around since the show we saw that very brief trailer that was new crews new missions new stories yeah the... the big the big Thing in there, at least for me, was when it said new cruise, like yeah, cruise, cruise plural. plural, yeah. So, what that had led me and a, a lot of other people to believe was that this would be an anthology series, sort of like True Detective or American Horror Story, where every season it would be about a new crew. But Brian Fuller has said it is not an anthology series. He didn't clarify about the crews too much, but... Uh, yeah, he said an anthology show is not accurate, which is like, what a great non-answer. Yeah. Man should be in politics. <laughs> My guess is that it's... So it's going to be... He also said it was 13 episodes, this first season anyway, and it's going to be like a serialized continuing story. Or at least that's the impression yeah, I got. Yeah, 13 episodes... I'm sorry, he said a 13-chapter story. Right. Rather than something more episodic, like the traditional next-gen format. Yeah, so maybe, to my mind, that means it won't just focus on one ship. That it's a big enough story that we're going to be following it from multiple ships' perspectives? Maybe. Yeah, I was thinking the same thing. Sort of like this, the short arcs that had, you know, in Battlestar, it had the Galactica and the Pegasus. Right. I mean, it, that didn't last very long because of the context of the show. But in this case, you know, Federation's got plenty of ships. Yeah. And they've, even in the most canon... <laughs> Canon being a word that means things that really happened in a fictional universe. <laughs> Even in the most canon interpretations, they've come out and said, like, different ships are for different things. Yeah. So maybe we're going to see, like, a team of crews, like, putting a few ships together. That could be cool. Yeah, like, there's a science ship, and then, like, a more warship, and then a diplomatic ship. So you have different crews who are, are geared towards different things, as opposed to the traditional Star Trek show, where it's just different crew members who are geared to different things. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's sort of more of a Game of Thrones TV approach than a traditional Star Trek approach. You're spreading things out a bit. Yeah. And that does have its ups and downs, Daenerys, for God's sake. Get back into the... <laughs> anyway. <laughs> uh, speaking of the, the crew, one of the things he said was that they are doing progressive casting through a colorblind and genderblind prism. Which is, you know, always good to hear in uh, this modern age. And although it's sort of the kind of thing you f figure should be happening anyway. Yeah, but uh, another thing about it is that um, I'm I'm guessing there's finally going to be gay characters on uh, Star Trek. It's something that has been toyed with, and they've they've coyly referred to things on, on shows before, but they've never really addressed it in Star Trek. Right, and some of the expanded stuff that was circling was Lieutenant Hawk was supposed to be gay. Right. right. He's a very minor role. He was sort of the new tactical guy in First Contact. Yeah, he has like four lines. Yeah, and then he gets assimilated. Spoilers. Yeah, well. Uh, <laughs> assimilate this. Yes. Poor, poor Hawk. Poor Hawk. But yeah, so if they're going to bring it into the into the limelight, that's it's probably about time. Yeah, Star Trek's always been about you know everyone made a big deal back in the day that there was a Russian crew member on the original yeah. Enterprise back in the like there was a black woman on the bridge of the Enterprise yeah. and she an kissed Asian a white man. captain. Like, yeah, like, Star Trek's always been at the front of this stuff. Yeah, and I feel like they they have fallen behind in this regard. Like they've had many opportunities to to do something like this or address this, and the closest I got was like. Riker flirting with an androgynous uh, alien in that and he one episode. Was, and he was weirded out by it. It's, yeah. It sort of subverted the... If that was the purpose, they blew it. Right. So I, it's it's about time. Uh, another thing that they've said about it is because it's going to be on the streaming service, that they're not going to be constrained by sort of network restrictions as far as, you know, swearing or, or violence or nudity and sex. And... 
I mean, that's that's kind of good to hear, but it's also, like, do I want a lot of swearing in my Star Trek? Yeah, do I want a lot of nudity in my yeah. Star Trek? That's, like, that always sort of, like, when, you know, when Voyager was doing really awful and they dumped Kess to pick up the, you know, Jerry Ryan in the skin-tight suit. Yeah. That was sort of the jump-in-the-shark moment for that show, and that was, like, what, season two, season three? I- some like, like three or four, pretty I think. early, but and then in Enterprise with Jolene Blaylock, who clearly had nothing to do but wear no, no clothes, <laughs> like that's that's not what I want from my Star Trek. Yeah, it, I mean, again, we like this is all total speculation, mm-hmm. but it, it's kind of a head scratcher. It's always been Star Trek has always had a, a certain element of uh, titillation to it, but at a certain point, that should be there to service the story and not just to just to be there, just to. Draw eyes. I mean, certainly in a different worlds, it can, like it's much more appropriate in like the Rome, Spartacus, Game of Thrones kind of worlds. Yeah. Than it is in the future utopia Star Trek kind of world. Yeah. But we'll see what they do. Uh, the last thing that I found interesting that he mentioned in this interview was he said that people were talking about it being set after Undiscovered Country and right. before Next Generation, uh, which sounds like a cool period to explore. He said, "Nope, not true, unequivocally." But. So who what does that mean, though? <laughs> yeah. So when is it going to be set? Yeah. I mean, which do we even know which universe it's set in? Is it set in like sort of classic Trek or like post First Contact, Star Trek Enterprise? Things are weird in the timeline now. Star Trek or in J.J. Abrams Star Trek? We don't know anything. Yeah. Uh, which I guess isn't really news, but I'm just <laughs> saying it's something that I'm interested in and I find very exciting. They're going to start shooting pretty soon, right here in Toronto, so hopefully we can... uh... We will do our best to break into the set and get shot in the background. We'll let you, (laughs) our loyal audience, know if we make it on. Or you might see it in the papers. (laughs) Police reports. Anyway, speaking of television that we watched in the 90s... Oh yeah, oh yeah. (laughs) Where do you start with this? So, for some reason, they've decided to make another Mighty Morphin Power Rangers product. Yeah, this is going to be the third feature film... Yeah. But it's going to be the first one that's not directly tied to a TV series that's currently airing. Yeah, of which there have been 19. Including one or two that are currently airing. Yeah. So this series, this franchise is uh, is is kind of unstoppable. It's a very basic formula. It's incredibly cheap. It's listen, Mighty Morphin Power Rangers, when it was just the Mighty Morphin Power Rangers, this was 93? 93. Um, essentially, they took a bunch of f- superhero fighting footage from a Japanese, like, super, it, there's a word for it, but it's a superhero show. They were called the Super Sentai, and they filmed American actors around it, kind of like the original release of Godzilla, if you're a movie buff. Right. Um, so it's cheap, because you have all that cool action footage that you're just buying from Japan already, and then you dump some morals into it, and you have them say, like, look, just because we're fighting, that you, know, you have to be responsible with violence, and you pitch it to kids who like monsters and superheroes and robots. Yeah. And I sound sarcastic, but man, did that push all my buttons at once. All I wanted was the Megazord. Yeah, when we were kids, all we did was talk Power Rangers, I think. You know, when I was in, in grade three or four, all I did every recess was play Power Rangers. And what this uh, movie is doing is it's sort of rebooting that first season of the show. They're bringing back the same character names, at least, and uh, but just recasting them and, and starting fresh. Yeah, it's a reboot in yeah. the classic sense of the word. Just rebooting something that has become so complex. Um, we've known about this for a while. The reason that we're bringing it up now is because they've announced them. The Power Rangers mentor character, their Yoda, is, is Zordon. Such a great name. Yeah. It was this big face in a tube who gave them orders, and he's the one who created the Power Rangers. The backstory doesn't matter. In the new movie, he's being played by Brian Cranston from Breaking Bad and a bunch of like high-profile, really prestige stuff lately. He's going to be a floating head in a jar. Yeah. This is so bizarre. This character is... This character like, fills the, men- the mentor role because the Power Rangers are always, you know, in the 90s they described them as teenagers with attitude. Right. That was the, the tagline, which sounds really le- lame if you're an adult or a teenager, but really appeals to kids <laughs> who want to be teenagers. And essentially all he did was sort of help these teenagers with their incredibly surface level like character issues. He was, he was the exposition machine. He would be there to explain all the crazy stuff that was going on. He would explain who the bad guys are and, and what they need to do. And then deliver a moral. Yeah. You know, like, you know, Jason feels bad because he's not sure if he can be the leader. Well, Jason, you just have to believe in yourself. Okay, Zordon. <laughs> I'm a great leader. You just get all that, all, all that over with in 22 minutes. It, it really doesn't seem like a role that requires a serious actor. It requires the one who knocks. <laughs> 
And but I mean, this isn't the first sort of big name and somewhat odd casting decision they made. There's also Elizabeth Banks from uh, Zack and Miri. She was in uh, the Pitch Perfect movies. She directed the second Pitch Perfect movie. She's she was in Forty Year Old Virgin and. Uh, She's going to be playing the villain of the movie, Rita Repulsa. Oh, yeah. Oh, Also, I don't know how I forgot this. She was like a main character in the Hunger Games movie, which is probably where everyone knows her from. Which one is she in the... She's Effie. Oh, the... Um, oh, the, the, the... Yeah, the mentor role. The sort of like fashion plate. Yeah, she's got all the crazy dresses. Yeah. And... Okay. Yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, part of me just wonders... Like, we're old enough now. Do all these actors, are they like us? Do they just have all this nostalgic attachment to the series and they kind of want to be a part of it? Because what other possible reason would you have to be in this? My cynical take on it is that they have saved so much money by casting a bunch of unknowns as the Power Rangers themselves that they could just throw a blank check at Brian Cranston and Elizabeth Banks to add a certain level of credibility to the movie that it wouldn't otherwise have. But why would you do that? Why would you cast a bunch of unknowns as the Power Rangers? Because you need teenagers. I mean, who are you going to get? You can't get Jennifer Lawrence to be a Power Ranger at this point. We we do have a proud history of casting 30-year-olds as teenagers. It's It's happened before. These guys all seem to be uh, younger, like at least somewhat closer to age appropriate, probably late teens, early 20s. But, I mean, I could read off their names, but it's not going to mean anything because I've never heard of a single one of them. Yeah, this will be starting their careers, assuming it doesn't end their careers. <laughs> Let's face it, the Power Rangers movies were not, you know, they were not Oscar award winning performances. No. No, it's, this is just extreme teenagers fighting evil with the power of friendship. Right. And that's fine. I don't know why we need to bring, I mean, we bring it back as we're bringing back everything. I don't know why Brian Cranston is yeah. in it. But I'm looking forward to seeing him. That's going to be a riot. Here's my question to you. We're both, you know, obviously feel a lot of nostalgia for this franchise from our, our youth. Do you think you'll go see this movie? Probably not in theaters. Yeah. Um, I will want to know how it does, and I might, like, if it does really well, I might be curious to see it, but no, the the hook of the Power Rangers, it's not one of those things you can go back to. Right. It it, it does not hold up. It, like, when I was four or five... Okay, no, I guess when it was out, I was older than that. Jeez, yeah. okay, that's a little embarrassing. <laughs> <laughs> Closer to ten, um, then it was just a fun, like you know, it was fun, action-packed, and then monsters and robots. Looking back on it now, you see all the horrible cuts between the Japanese version and the American version. Rita like, Repulsa's terrible dubbing. Yeah, they don't. The characters don't look the same. Like the American actors when they go into their Power Ranger suits, like now it's the Japanese actors, and they, they're not the same person. You can tell they don't have the same build. Looking back. This isn't something that you go back to for the quality. Right. Um, and also, I mean, it's going to be aimed at teens of today, which is pretty far from what we are. At, at... Uh, yeah, yeah, we don't have to. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, let's move on to uh, to number three. Yeah, number three. Oh, man. Um, <laughs> Mighty number nine. This is a, this is a tale of tears. In, in the late 1980s, uh, Keiji Inafune is, is an artist, designer... Uh, a graphic guy at a video game company Capcom, and he creates Mega Man. Mega Man, he's never hit the you know the same stardom like the Super Mario Brothers have, but he's a big name in video games for like during the late Nintendo, early Super Nintendo, you know the late eighties, nineties. Mega Man was it. It was a big game. It was touted for these unique qualities, this uh, non-linear sort of mission structure and a really non-linear way to power yourself up and get new abilities and tools. That was always something that appealed to me. I I never really played the games that much, but I loved the idea that you got to pick what level you were going to do in what order. And I think there is a strategy there. Right. Yeah. There's. I mean, what you do is like, each level has a boss at the end that you get a new power that you can use against other bosses. So, like, if you beat the water guy, you could get the water power, and most of the time you'd know to use that against the fire guy. Right. But it wasn't just in terms of like just making your guns shoot water. Now it was they also worked differently. So, like, Mega Man's basic weapon could only shoot left and right. But other weapons might shoot up or down or on a diagonal or do different. Some of them would seek. Like, it gave you more tools to play through the game. And then later on, it, levels would get more complicated. You would want those tools to help. A lot of fun. Great game. Got oversaturated. They made something like five spin-off series, and then sales just plummeted. Like they, they just they did. We weren't making any new games. Now, how many how many games do you think were in the core franchise? Uh, tons. Uh, in the like co- before X, let's uh, take X. They, they do overlap. 
so okay. it's hard to say. But Mega Man had six games for the classic Nintendo. He had five games on Game Boy. Then seven was on Super Nintendo. Eight was on Super Nintendo in Japan and PlayStation over here. And then very recently, they sort of did what they call a retro release, where they made Mega Man 9 and 10 using the old graphics. Oh, okay. Um, and then there's plenty of other spin-off titles. There was like They had their equivalent for the Mario Kart game. They had Mega Man Battle and Chase. Right, they had Mega Man Soccer. They had Mega Man Soccer, which actually was a lot of fun. <laughs> it was soccer, but occasionally you could use your special abilities, so you could like blow up the goalie. Anyway, what you need to take away from this, Mega Man was great, and then it got oversaturated, it spiraled out of control, Capcom let the franchise lapse. Those 9 and 10 retro games came out sort of like 2008, 2010. It's the only thing they'd done with it for years. And then they didn't do anything with it anymore. Did they? He popped up in Smash Brothers, right? He popped up recently in Smash Brothers, okay. which was like a big deal to geeks on the internet because we haven't seen him for so long. Right. What happened is Inafune said, well, the heck with this. He left Capcom, founded his own company concept, and said, I'm making this game called Mighty Number no. 9 that is like Mega Man in every way that is trademark free. And he started a Kickstarter, a crowdfunding campaign. And all the Mega Man fans said, yeah, let's get a good old-fashioned Mega Man game again. Screw Capcom. It's going to be great. Well, the Kickstarter campaign happened in, uh, in 2013. It was funded almost immediately. A planned release in April 2015. There have been some problems, and it just came out now, and it's awful. So that's, what, a year and two months after the, the original yep. release date? Uh, they had one problem after another with this. Um, for starters, the game is terrible. It is, so you've, you've got it, right? I, I've got it, and I've played it, and this is both from Geek Top 5's you know, official review and from just the reviews out there, the Metacritic scores. It's technically challenged. It's terribly written and acted. It, the first line of the game is, it is the present year. Hmm. It's just, and it doesn't get any better from there. <laughs> the level design is uninspired and unbalanced. You'll go from an incredibly boring corridor to this ridiculous jumping puzzle that you can't complete just because the controls don't suit it. Wow. It's a bad game. And you know, Inafune did this, like, we're going to show Capcom who's boss. I think Capcom proved its point. Like, yeah. he, he, So Inafune now is left with his boot in his mouth. And Mega Man fans are unhappy. Uh, proponents of crowdfunding are unhappy. Right. And people are starting to realize a Kickstarter campaign is not a store. Just because you paid for, you know, you hoped would be a good Mega Man game, they weren't in any, like, I mean, they were tried to give it to you, but yeah. you were not owed a good Mega Man game. I think another part of the problem is that they, in that first Kickstarter video, they had uh, footage from their, their sort of test level or, or something, and it looked really good. And the finished product does not look nearly as good as that demo from three years ago. does not look nearly as good. It's, everything about the game's design, its graphics, even the UI and interface, it's from PlayStation 1. Even the sound effects. Wow. Like, it's, like, it's like they haven't been paying attention to video games since the last time there was a Mega Man game out. What people were hoping for when they said, get us a new Mega Man game, is a new Mega Man game that fits in with mechanics today. And that's not impossible to do. Um, a lot of people point out Shovel Knight, which came out about the time that this Kickstarter uh, came out. It came out in 2014. Shovel Knight is now out for everything. It's even done in retro style and 8-bit mm. graphics, but it's platforming. It borrows from a lot of Nintendo classics like Castlevania, even the DuckTales game. It's phenomenal. It's made a bazillion dollars, and they're still making content for it. There's a new free campaign coming out for wow. it soon. Mighty Number no. 9, they just they couldn't get it together. And the Kickstarter is just a story of mistakes. At one point, when things were looking like they were going really well, he actually kickstarted a second game while this game was still in production. And everyone said, excuse me, yeah, I've already invested in your first game. Where, where is that? What, what's happening? The second Kickstarter, for, I think it was called Red Ash, failed. Ah. And then they tried to hit all... Like, one of the things they talked about was they tried to release it for so many systems at once. PS4, PS3, Xbox One, Xbox 360, PC, and they haven't been able to do it. Isn't it... Didn't it also come out on the PS Vita? Which it's is... supposed to be out for everything, but the handheld versions still aren't out and don't have a release date. They just... They couldn't do it. They're delayed and they're working on it. The Xbox One one is full of mistakes. Really? It's just like it technical glitches. People are getting the wrong like, the wrong content for the game and things aren't working. It wow. just Yeah, it's a disaster. What this is in terms of news is A, 
Mega Man is dead. Long live Mega Man. <laughs> He'll be back. I wish. B, don't trust Kickstarter. <laughs> like, a Kickstarter is not a store. You are not obligated to anything. Kickstarter is a charity for someone who's talking about doing something you might like, and that's it. And that's all you get. Just from just a, a slightly less cynical take on it, perhaps just do a bit more research. Make sure you know what you're getting into when you do a Kickstarter, and maybe don't put in... A ton of money. Maybe use one of the lower tiers. Well, but if you researched this, you'd see it was the original creator of Mega Man, a bunch of professional video game developers, a bunch of media attention and financing. Right. Like, what Like what about that says this might not go... They had all of the pieces they needed. Right. They just couldn't put it together. Which happens sometimes. Making video games is hard. And I love Mega Man... And, I mean, I tried so hard to play as him in Smash Brothers, because he's a lousy Smash Brothers <laughs> character, and I miss him, and I want him to come back. Though, if you need that fix, don't go to, don't go to Mighty Number no. 9. Alright, let's take a look at number two on the list. Stargate. Stargate. We are just buried in the 90s today. Yeah, just, seriously. Yeah, best decade ever! Yeah. <laughs> so Stargate came out in 94, uh, came kind of out of nowhere, Mixed reviews, but generally a financial success. Yeah, it um, it was a, like there wasn't a lot of science fiction movies around that time, I guess. And then this came out. Um, what was this? Is Roland Emmerich and Dean Devlin? Yeah, Emmerich, we've I've heard of Devlin. I haven't. They but... they for a long time they worked together. They were sort of like partners in crime. They are the names behind Independence Day. They're behind the Godzilla movie, which I'm sure you loved uh, with Matthew Broderick. Yeah, and uh, you know they they're synonymous with with kind of big budget disaster movie schlock which stargate definitely had elements of um essentially it posited a science fiction world where the gods of ancient egypt were actually aliens right um, and the stargate is a big portal that goes to where they are and they come back movie did okay uh, but what it's known for is it spawned three television shows, um, which have all done really well. Yeah, and Emmerich and Devlin weren't involved in that. Not at all. It sounds sort of like the reverse of what happened with Buffy, where Joss Whedon wrote the Buffy the Vampire Slayer movie. It got taken away from him. They did whatever they wanted with it. And then he got it back and made the TV series. Emmerich and Devlin made the Stargate movie how they wanted, had it all taken away from them, and turned into a TV series that they had nothing to do with. Which sounds bad when you think about taking it away from the original artist, but I really enjoy these shows. It's an SG-1 came out in 97 and ran for 10 seasons. 10 seasons. 10 seasons. For a, for a sort of moderately budgeted sci-fi series, it has an incredible fan base. A, an incredible cast. It ended yeah. up being like a science fiction convention towards the end. Especially but, on Atlantis, right? Yeah, that's the next one. Um, <laughs> the Atlantis came out in 04 and ran for five seasons. And then Universe came out in 2009, only ran for a couple of seasons. That was their try on the big dark. Yeah. Yeah, everything's got to be dark and gritty now. Why are we talking about Stargate? <laughs> because Emmerich and Devlin are back! Taking the reins, back from the TV people. And they're, gonna, they're, they're, they're doing it again. Yeah. They're, they're, doing, they're, they're saying, we made the first Stargate movie and we always planned to make two more. And we couldn't, because of what happened with the licensing and stuff. So now we're going to make a new Stargate movie, we're resetting it, and then we're making the trilogy we always wanted. Right. Which, wow, I am so torn. <laughs> this is only really coming about because uh, they're, they're doing something similar, where they've they've got the Independence Day license, and they've just released uh, Independence Day... Resurgence. Resurgence. And so they've, they're taking the writers from that, and they're putting them on this this reboot. So, I, I don't know. It, it seems like uh, they, they had all these original ideas for a while there. I think they were involved in Ice Age. Uh, not Ice Age. Uh, the Day yeah. After. The Day After Tomorrow. That was it. Where it feels like an Ice Age. Jake Gyllenhaal and Dennis Quaid, and it's a big snowstorm. Oh, yeah, and they fight Huskies. Yeah, yeah. Okay. they were involved in 2012, and all every disaster movie they had a hand in. And now, I guess, they're out of disasters, so now they're going back to the old well and, and rebooting everything. Yeah, Egypt aliens. Yeah. Which... And I'm so torn because, I mean, the movie was fun, but it was fun, but I really like the TV show, and the TV show really was a departure from the movie. Mm. It was sort of a light-hearted, episodic adventure thing with overall arcs. They're, like, instead of having villain of the week, they pretty much have villain of the season. Okay. And they'd fight a few villains of the week, and the villain of the season would turn out to be behind it all, and they'd go and confront and move on. Also like Buffy. A, a lot like Buffy, actually. Um, and you know, the characters, a lot of it is very tongue-in-cheek. 
Um, there's a great, they have the obligatory sci-fi, we're stuck in a time loop episode, right. and the characters go nuts for a while, they have a montage of all the crazy things they do, playing golf through the Stargate and stuff like that, like, it's, it's a fun show. It's, I've always said to people, in a way I feel like it's the spiritual successor to Star Trek The Next Generation, in that it's an episodic show where I can just tune in wherever I want, okay. see an interesting adventure, Something where I'm interested in the characters, and there's sometimes an interesting sci-fi concept. All that canon, I use that word again, is going to be dumped for this new movie. Yeah. So on the one hand, it's like, yay, more Stargate, but it's going to be very different from what I now think of as Stargate. But do you think is, this is going to alienate the, the fans of those shows? I don't know that fans of the shows take it seriously enough to be alienated. Hmm. It's not like if you said, no, there was never a Death Star. Right. Um, but then again, I said the same thing about J.J. Abrams' Trek, and some people are really upset about that. How yeah. dare you blow up Vulcan? I hate you, and I hate the things you like. It's so it's hard to say. I mean, people can, like, who are really passionate about stuff can overreact to anything. I, for one, welcome more Stargate, regardless of what it is. I'm sure they'll be smart enough to take some cues from the show, at least. Like, it's such a popular part of the culture. But if they're the original creators of the thing, and they feel like they it was taken out of their hands and, and sort of done in a way that they didn't like, I mean, maybe they're resentful of the TV stuff. Maybe they are. It's again, I feel like it's almost two different shows. There's happened right. to, I mean, show one show, show one's a movie, but two different fictional creations that yeah. just happen to share a similar concept, and not much else overlap. Well, speaking of side movies, our number one news of the, of, the, of the ever, again, because every time there's Star Wars news, it's the most exciting thing ever. Uh, we've confirmed that Star Wars Rogue One, yes, I'm still calling it that, Star Wars Rogue One, Darth Vader will be there, and he will be voiced by James Earl Jones. Which is two key ingredients that I always like in my Star Wars. Yeah, uh, this is especially a thing for fans of more Star Wars products, like the video games and the, the books on tape and all that. Darth Vader without James Earl Jones doesn't quite... <laughs> yeah. so, so it's a double whammy. Bringing Darth Vader back for this movie, I mean, it makes perfect sense. It's around the creation of the first Death Star, the formation of the Rebellion. We're going to see Darth Vader, the most iconic Star Wars character, the most famous Star Wars character, maybe one of the most famous villains of all time. Easily. In his prime. Um, there's all these, like, you know, the people like lists these days. But the American Film Institute listed him as the third greatest movie villain in cinema history. Um, Empire Magazine had him on the list of 100 greatest characters. Like, everybody knows Darth Vader. Yeah, he so, is the face of Star Wars. Yeah, so if you have an opportunity to put Darth Vader in your movie, of course you're going to do it. And everyone knows James Earl Jones is Darth Vader. Mm -hmm. That voice just suits him, and it's so obvious when it's not that voice. To be fair, this is not a surprise. Darth Vader has been showing up in the current Star Wars cartoon run, Star Wars Rebels. James Earl Jones has been doing the voice, and he's been doing a phenomenal job. Yeah, uh, I think one of the things that helps there, I mean, he's he's an older man than he was when he first did Vader's voice, but there's enough of a, a digitization to it that it hides any real difference. As opposed to when, like, Billy D. Williams plays Lando on the cartoon, he's you supposed can to tell. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you can tell he's aged a bit. Uh, a bit. <laughs> but yeah, but Darth Vader's speaking, he's speaking through the, the mask. Yeah. And so it sounds fine, and there's just something about hearing that the breathing sound effect and hearing that voice that just makes you feel like a giddy kid again like the rebels cartoons very obviously dropped him in as a sort of stake upper and they've done it well like the characters in the cartoon are not luke skywalker they can't handle darth vader when darth vader shows up stuff goes bad right because he's darth vader and that's what we have to assume is going to happen in rogue one these characters, like, they're not going to kill Darth Vader. No. We, we know that. <laughs> Which I find is kind of interesting. Like, you know, J.J. Abrams said when they were making Force Awakens, one of the decisions behind making Luke Skywalker have such a minor role in the movie is because he didn't want to take away from the new protagonists. As soon as Luke showed up, all you were interested in was what Luke was doing. In this movie, they're going to bring Darth Vader back, and that's going to be the one everyone goes to see so I'm curious, like, is he going to overshadow the performance of all these new people? Well, my understanding is it's it's 
it's going to be probably a little more than a cameo, and hopefully he is just there and he'll he'll enhance the other stuff that's going on. Maybe it'll be a way to add some credibility to the villain in this. I, I don't know the character's name, but he's played by Ben Mendelsohn. Right, we've seen him. He's wearing the white Imperial Grand Admiral's uniform. You've seen yeah. him frowning in the trailers. And in this era of Star Wars, if, if A New Hope is any evidence, Vader isn't above taking orders from, from higher-level Imperial characters. Uh, Grand Moff Tarkin basically bosses him around on that Death Star. Well, they have an interesting relationship. Certainly, and I think there's a movie in there just in that relationship between those two Yeah, characters. don't you wish Tarkin was in Rogue One? Yeah. I, I don't understand. I mean, we'll see the movie. Um, but having Vader in there, yeah, it, it lends it incredible credibility as a Star Wars movie. You're right. If he's just a cameo, if he's just like if he shows up at the end to express the Emperor's displeasure, that's cool. Everyone will cheer. If he has a huge role, I think it'd be really interesting to see. Maybe it explains why we don't see any of these other characters in the classic trilogy. Maybe they don't make it. Yeah, which would be a really dark ending for the movie. There's definitely going to be some deaths uh, uh, because it's like a, a decent heist crew they've got there. And I'm Tanya. When you have that many characters. Not all of them are going to make it, yeah, especially when one's a blind mystic. I mean, he seems like pretty ripe for the chopping block. Pretty much any mentor figure, and you know, Forrest Whitaker is looking pretty tortured. Yeah, um, it's he might not make it. So who does he play? Uh, he plays a character from the Star Wars Clone Wars cartoon. He was um, uh, they did sort of um, like the Republic can't help these people because of politics, so we're going in to train their freedom fighters. Mm. Um, and in the canon, Anakin and Obi-Wan, still Jedi at the time, go and, like, train this rebel group, and he's an upstart, young rebel. You know, like, he's too forward, and he doesn't think, and he just wants to fight and not plan. Uh, they've taken that character, apparently now he's grown up, and he's played by Forrest Whitaker at this point. It seems like it's mostly just an interesting, like a, like a nod to the people who watch the cartoon. I can't imagine it'll affect what happens in the movie very much. So, so you're saying that this guy was trained by Anakin, and now we know that Darth Vader, who is Anakin, is in the movie too. Right, but that's not common knowledge in the Star Wars universe. Like, I suppose, but that seems right, like I, a juicy remember, thing. It seems like it, but even Darth Vader tells people that he killed Anakin Skywalker. Yeah. Because that's sort of how he sees it in his head. Right. Maybe there'll be a thing, but it seems like if they make that part of the movie, it would only make sense to the relatively small group of people who watch the cartoon. Okay. I expect we're probably not going to see that drawn out too much. Sure. Uh, I think it'll just, it's sort of a you know, a nod and a wink to the people who are following the broader universe. I, anyway, Darth Vader, very exciting. Well, thanks for tuning in. We'll be right back with our guest segment. In the meantime, let's all just take a moment to pause to think about how cool Darth Vader is. We'll be right back. Okay, we're back for the second half of this episode of Geek Top 5. With us this week is Zinni and a list of the top five Star Trek adversaries. And I, I gotta say, so adversaries, like, the, this is the coolest thing, like, like, of all the Star Trek stuff, you wanted the bad guys the most? The bad guys are what make it interesting. And I had originally thought they were villains, but I, I don't like that uh, title for them. Because villain, it's more than villain. I enjoy these particular adversaries because they're more complex and they're more well-developed than just your standard one-dimensional villains. Oh, that makes perfect sense, yeah. And most of the ad, most of the adversaries... I'm making quotation marks <laughs> in the air. Most of the adversaries in the Star Trek universe are very one-dimensional. There's the usual Klingons, Borg, etc. And everybody knows who they are, and everybody knows what to expect from them, and the writing matches it. And so I, I, you know, I don't need to talk about them. So I came up with the top five adversaries that I found more interesting and the ones that I love the best. <laughs> okay. I had to say, I was a little surprised to see that the Borg didn't make the cut. Because I, I love the Borg, but the Borg are just so overdone. I think the, I think that's Voyager's fault. Um, probably. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the Borg were the best in First Contact. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. And and other than that, they started. It was just they became overdone, and so yeah, there were so yeah. many more interesting. Okay. All right. Well, let's let's for example, what's number five? Or, okay, number five. I have the Vorta. Now the ah. Vorta is a species. Oh, sure. Let me go back, however, and let me say. <laughs> okay. Mo- four out of five of my top five list came from DS9, from Deep Space That was another thing I was surprised (laughs) by. I am in a minority. I know I'm in a minority. However, DS9 is my second favorite of the Star Trek. Next next to Next Generation, 
I find DS9 is my absolute favorite Star Trek series. And the adversaries obviously have a large part in that. Yeah. Next Gen, it's more about problem solving, and the villains, if there are any, are sort of one-dimensional or limited, whereas DS9 is all about the writing and the intricacies. And the storytelling. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so tell us about the Vorta. The Vorta, um, for anyone who may not remember, um, are the face of the Dominion, and they act as their diplomats and administrators, and they also uh, are in charge of the Jem'Hadar, which is the military arm. So we come across them in 33 episodes, and they are a very large part of the um, war between the Dominion and the Federation. They're genetically engineered to worship the Dominion or the founders as gods. And they clone, so that they clone... Whenever That's a, how they reproduce. They, yeah, yeah they, exactly. So I was going to say they clone their favorites. <laughs> Which kind of is the way it works out. The most um, well-used Vorda was Wei Yun, who was played by Jeffrey Combs. Oh, so good. <laughs> <laughs> such what a great really actor <laughs> and such a great character, too. He was cloned eight times. <laughs> and the Vorta were so annoying that a lot of the times they were killed by their own people. They were killed by the Jem'Hadar. They were um, killed by their allies, the Cardassians. They were sleazy and contemptuous and sarcastic. The great thing is they never really took it personally when they were killed, I don't think. No, well, actually, Damar, who was the Cardassian ally with the, the Vorta, when Worf killed one of the Wayuns. Damar just laughed and said, oh, there's just going to be another Wayun coming along soon. But thankfully, the Federation destroyed the cloning facility. So we only had eight Wayuns. But the oh. Oh, see, and FO, I think, I think in Wayun's case specifically, I think it's Damar ends up blowing up. With this, spoiler alert, Damar eventually <laughs> turns, right? He leads the Cardassian yes. resistance. And yes. I think his breakout yeah. for that is he blows up a lot of the cloning facilities and I think Jeffrey Coombs has a line. He says, he did that to get at me because now I'm going to be the last Wayun. I think you're absolutely right. And it was, again, working on the same side as the Federation yeah. before, but it was they were overall ruthless, sarcastic, and oozing with contempt. And I just loved. Yeah. But the-, the best, sorry, the best, <laughs> best was when the in an episode that featured the Ferengi, yeah. which oh. was called the Magnificent Ferengi, and this was um, a Vorta named Keevan, who was played by rock star Iggy Pop. Yeah, so good. That's why, <laughs> and when I found was, that out, I was ah, blown away. I was so excited. This was the most hilarious episode, I think, of almost any of the Star Treks. I, I would uh, be willing to go for that. Yeah. But just in general, like the Vorta, like the, the politicians that you love to hate, yeah. they always say the right thing the right time in just the right way and then you turn around and they stab you in the back and they go eh you know yeah it's business just bored of things yeah. <laughs> and it's exactly who they were based on I, I truly believe they were based on the based on the modern day politician mm-hmm. but I think one of the the weak parts about them is they're really never as good without Wayun. all the other uh, the other um, Vorta don't quite live up to Wayun, who is the best. He's just I, so perfect. I feel it. like the species is modeled after Jeffrey Coombs' portrayal of Absolutely. Wayun. He wasn't the first. Vorta, he wasn't though. the first. Yeah, and the, it's weird in the beginning, right? Like they meet they, they meet the female Vorta, and she has mind powers. Or yeah, something, but they, that was never re- repeated again. Yeah, like that wasn't a species wide thing. It's like it they tried it once, and then they thought, yeah. "Nah, no, that's not going to work." I read that the way they sort of justified that in the writers' room was that she was specifically designed by the founders to have that power for this one specific job. Right. Yeah, if you're going to genetically engineer something to work for you, you might as well do it to your own, you know, yeah. certain specifications. <laughs> and the rest of the time, it's just the sleaziness yes. that they do it. And there's the episode where like, Dukat tries to poison someone with poison canary, the Cardassian drink, and Cisco puts it down on the table like to sort of say, what the hell? The way you just drinks it. Yeah. And they're all looking at him like he's insane. He's like, oh, we're genetically engineered to be diplomats. We have to be, you know, we have to be resistant to poisons. That's yeah. just... <laughs> That's exactly... That was the quote. Yes, that was one of the most famous quotes of the Vorta. It's, he puts it a lot better than I did. But yeah, they were just so weaselly. Yeah. And it just, it's just so satisfying. That's so much fun like, to watch. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so shall we move on to number four? Number yes. four. Number four is another fun group called Section 31. Ah, and again, this is from DS9. 
This bothered a lot of Trekkies. Oh, okay. I want to hear about that in a second, but just let me go over. <laughs> yeah. um, they first appeared in season six of DS9, and they basically were the Federation's intelligence agency or their black ops agency, and they were accountable to no one. And their motto was to defend the Federation by any means necessary. Um, and the best quote from uh, one of these episodes for Section 31 was that uh, was William Sadler played Agent Sloan, and he was the agent mm -hmm. that we saw the most of, uh, from Section 31. He tells Dr. Bashir, the Federation needs men of conscience, and they need Section 31 to make that possible. So... It's basically today's NSA is what they're trying <laughs> this is, to do. Yeah. This is the ends justify the means, which Absolutely. is so counter to everything that Star Trek has stood for. Yeah. And that was the thing I liked is that they they tarnished the image. We always the Picard Starfleet. Yeah. Upright, always right, always moral, always doing the right thing. Give me a break. <laughs> I, I, I agree, but I do miss that a little bit. You know, I like that. It, Star Trek, at least in the Next Generation days, uh, didn't... They, they were like a moral beacon, especially with Picard, that you could look to. Like, there's so many mm -hmm. episodes of Next Generation where Picard stands out as this moral center and, and you can look to him at, for guidance for real-world problems. When you get into Deep Space Nine, Starfleet becomes all sort of gray and murky and there's no right, no wrong. And while that's a better reflection of reality, it's... It's a little depressing. <laughs> Most of Next Gen, though, didn't take place during a war, for, a, particularly a war of survival. Yeah, or at mm -hmm. least not that we know of. Like, the first time the Cardassians appear, like, the very first time they're mentioned, that's the war is ending. Yes. And I like, when did there was yeah, a when war? when was there a war? Yeah. <laughs> and there was a bit of trouble with the Klingons yeah. when they broke off the... But, but there's never really the battle for survival, except for the Borg, I guess. Yeah. But even then, that's one battle, yeah. and it's a very sci-fi. Like, as much as it's a battle, it's a There's science no fiction. There's no, yeah. no politics yeah. It's just a science fiction problem, and then they solve it. This DS9, Cisco has that great line, it's easy to be a saint in paradise. Mm. Yes. But it's like, but now, so this, Section 31 said, what happens to these people when this paradise is threatened? And they even brought Section 31 into the new movies. Yeah, because yeah, it's, in, about that. it's in Into Darkness. It is uh, Admiral Marcus yeah. who wakes up uh, Noonien Singh. Yeah, to all build of that. the weapons, all... and that's all Section Thirty One. Yeah, yeah, it was. Uh... And, and don't feel bad because Section Thirty One is portrayed as evil. I mean, yes. as as bad. But, I agree. but you just feel so disappointed that yeah. it still yeah. exists. Even and and that's what yeah. the Trek fan rebellion was sort of like. It's because Gene Roddenberry's yeah. vision was that this is a perfect future. Gene Darn it, yeah. Roddenberry would, would have been. Spinning in his grave at the yeah, the but that was in the sixties. I agree. I agree. <laughs> yeah. Next generation improved a lot when he was sort of put at more of a distance, and uh, mm -hmm. the Star Trek movies improved a lot. I mean, he was heavily involved with the motion picture, and it's it's a, a fine movie, but it's not you know edge of your seat. Uh, it's not something it's, I want to watch. It's over difficult and over to again. create conflict in a utopia. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But this was like this took and just it pulled the rug out from under the good guys of the Federation. And throughout the Section 31 episodes in Deep Space Nine, like except for right at the end, they don't really quite win. Like Section 31 gets away with it, and like you know, they complain to an admiral, and the admiral goes, Well, some you know, sometimes <laughs> Well, don't forget what what Cisco did with the Romulans and bringing them into the uh, into yeah. the Dominion War. In the pale yeah. moonlight. So yeah. and that was nothing to do with section thirty one. Yeah. The it's a fake that yeah. episode. Okay. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he faked the, he faked them into yeah. uh, thinking that they were being betrayed by yeah. uh, the the founders. So showing that Star Trek has a dark side and making Section yeah. Thirty One the face of it. Picard would never have done it. No. No. Picard would never have approved. Yeah. <laughs> well, then to avoid crying, I will move on <laughs> to my number three, which is Win Adama or Kai Win Adami. I beg your pardon. Adama yeah. was from Battlestar Galactica. I have to keep <laughs> yeah. reminding myself of that. She was portrayed by Louise Fletcher, who did such a great job. Yeah. She was in the series, uh, Deep Space Nine, starting in season one. She was a Vedic of the... A priest. A, a priest, basically, of, on Bajor, of the Bajoran Assembly. And she was, in my mind, a modern, what we would consider a modern-day evangelist, a right-wing a right conservative evangelist today. Yeah. That's yeah. what she portrayed. She, yeah. she pushed her religion over science. 
She was selfish, arrogant, and power hungry. She tried to assassinate her rival to yeah. become Kai. She tricked her way into becoming Kai. She worked with she, a terrorist. Just like or- being the Pope, essentially. She, tri- she day, worked yeah. with a terrorist organization, the Circle, because they promised her she would become Kai. And she eventually results in, um, she becomes seduced by Galdu, by the Cardassians and Galdukat and almost manages to release the, the evil paw wraiths to kill the prophets and ends up basically causing the, uh, the death. Um, at, well, I guess we don't want to give away yeah. any spoilers. <laughs> but, yeah, the show's 20 years old. Yeah, I think we're okay. Uh, but causing the, the death of Cisco in the end. Right. Yeah. She, Kai Wynn, like when growing up watching Kai Wynn on television, she was my first, like, bad guy who wasn't a cartoon you know what i mean like yeah. a regular person but who's so evil who just who's doing everything so wrong so selfish so just but everything she did like you could see it from her perspective so easily and think it's so easy to justify those actions for her like i i wouldn't do them but i can see from her perspective that what she thought thinks that the the ends justify the means in that case like she doesn't think she was doing anything wrong i don't think oh she never does yeah and that's how it ends up in season seven she when she realizes she's been working with the cardassians or she's been working with the you know the devils of the bajoran mm-hmm. religion she goes to nana visitor to kira and says like what do i do and kira says listen your entire life you've been jealous you've been self-centered Give all that up. Stop being the Pope. That's what you do. That's how you. And she says, "Well, I, I don't want to do that. I like being the Pope." <laughs> yes. I mean, yeah. that's that's not how I solve this problem because I'm super important and I'm the one in charge. That's ridiculous. Well, this was all driven by her jealousy of Cisco being the pro, the emissary of the prophets yeah. and Kira Kira Nerys getting visions from the prophets and no, the prophets never talked to her. Yeah. And this drove her mad. Yeah. And she and but again, it starts with her. It's all about her. We know people Always. like this in real life. Yeah. It's just it's all me, me, me. But this person who's like that is in such a position of power. And like like it's all twisted up in her head because of course it revolves around her. Yeah. This is her story and she just destroys everything everyone she's, around her yeah. yeah everyone she's it's so unnerving she even killed her personal assistant because he found out that about Gulf yeah Cut. and then wow. she freaks out a little bit until he reassures her no it's okay we'll hide the body and she goes oh okay that's fine then <laughs> yep can rationally justify and louise fletcher did such a great job yeah of playing her i mean she was the she was a nurse ratchet and uh one flew Cuckoo's, really yes yeah played a very did. similar <laughs> character in that one <laughs> Okay, so my number two is finally not in DS9, and it's I think it's everybody's uh, everybody's favorite is Khan Noonien Singh. Yeah, um, p- portrayed by Ricardo Montalban and Benedict Cumberbatch. Um, let's let's forget the Benedict Cumberbatch. We'll one. talk. Okay, okay. <laughs> so uh, I don't have to tell anybody. I don't, I think who he was or, or you know, but um, well, I mean, not, I think I don't know how many people have seen Space Seed. Yeah, like Space Seed was the from the yeah. original series. So he was a uh, genetically engineered superhuman, basically, who led a eugenics war on Earth. Was in nineteen ninety in the nineteen nineties. Yeah, yeah so, the far yeah. future. Somehow I missed that. I, I must have been asleep. But um, he, they end up being defeated and put into cryogenic sleep and and shot off into space. And, yeah. Well, who should find them but the Enterprise? Yeah. And Kirk ends up, after he tries to take uh, the Enterprise, Kirk ends up marooning him on Steady Alpha 5, which, um, letting them live. Yeah. And he takes one of the crew with him, who becomes his I mean, wife. he seduces a red shirt. Yeah. 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 And she goes with him to become his wife. Well, unfortunately, that there's a, a Nova, the sun goes, or it's, something. Like Steady Alpha 6 is destroyed or something. And it becomes yeah. basically an uninhabitable mm-hmm. planet. Yeah. And they are yeah. barely surviving there, and his wife dies, and many of his crew die. And so the next, <laughs> Kirk finds him again. Yeah, well, check off. Check off. Finds him. Oh, and check okay, off. Botany Bay? Oh, no. <laughs> most cringeworthy scene in any of those movies was putting in the eel into the Ugh. air to try and get the truth. Um, but in that movie, Khan gave us the, the meme, I think, that most everyone knows. Yeah. Which is the scream yeah. con, which was later repeated in the alternate timeline, right. but it, but by Spock yeah. instead of by Kirk. But one con at a time. Hang on. <laughs> Ricardo Ricardo Montalban played him with such flair, yeah. and such drama, it's so over the top. <laughs> what, like, and 
considering the character's name is Khan Noonien Singh, to have Ricardo Montalban play him and not even try and go Indian in any oh, sense. Oh, Well, yeah, but Jean-Luc Picard's with an English accent. Uh, he's, from, he's from a French vineyard. Yeah, yeah. yeah, he speaks a little French, though. I don't know. I guess, but I mean, it, it, it's, it's the far future. All that stuff's confused sure, now. It doesn't matter. Enough. And, I mean, Ricard, but Ricardo does that quote from Moby Dick towards the end. Of, um, oh, oh, from hell's heart yeah, I stab, stab at thee. thee for hate's sake I spit my last breath at thee and then they paraphrased <laughs> it a little I'll chase him round the moons of Nibia and round the Antares maelstrom and round perdition's flames before I give him up yeah I don't I remember mean, that from the original wanna... <laughs> and on the online film critic society voted him the number 10 of all greatest film villains well I, he, he earns it now I gotta ask though, like in the end, he, like his sinister plan is just revenge. He wants to kill Captain Kirk. Well, he's right? yeah, yeah. But then the reason people love him so much, like, is it just the the dramatic performance? Is it just that everything? I think it's is his a chest. monologue. I think it's his chest. <laughs> the, the chest of Khan is it pretty is impressive. It is really his dramatic performance. <laughs> yeah, apparently it's really his chest. And, and he's <laughs> evil because I mean he he kills Kirk's son. No, he, no. I mean, the, he's, didn't the Klingons in Star Trek Three kill Kirk's son? No, the Klingon, you're right. The Klingons kill Kirk, kill David in Star Trek III. He, oh, wait, well, no, he kills Spock. Hello. Right, right. Sorry, right. he kills yeah. Spock. Let's not, <laughs> although all, that was only a temporary situation. Yeah. Oh, he didn't know that. Yeah, okay, but, but what Spock. you said about Benedict Cumberpatch. Okay. Benedict Cumberpatch chooses to play him as a psychopath, as a cold-blooded psychopath. Right. A, so instead of drama and flair, you get the... He's oh, icy. The, the, yeah. the fava beans. Hannibal Lecter? Hannibal yeah, you, Lecter. Get Han- you get Hannibal Lecter. <laughs> Which, again, I think his performance was good. I mean, it didn't have anything to do with the original con. Yeah. Maybe that's okay? Because it's an alternate timeline. It Who just cared? felt like there was no reason for it to be con. Like, just leave him as John Harrison, his fake, you know, red herring name. Yeah, but you, he did that in the first movie, too. Is He's J.J. He's, uh, Abrams. Is yeah. purposely trying, I mean, this, trying to replicate... The original Star Trek to lead everyone gently into the alternate universe. Right, but I just don't. I don't think the first one had the same replication. Like they brought Spock in, but there wasn't any. It wasn't mirroring any plot lines that we'd already seen. It kind of bugged me that it didn't mirror. Things. They brought in the Romulans, but so they changed how they looked. They changed the appearance and they hey, gave them the weird let's shit. Let's not forget the change in the Klingons' appearance between well, the original okay. series <laughs> and next gen. <laughs> you could argue that the Romulans' appearance in the movie is because they've shaved their heads. I know, the there was the comic book stuff. thing. But in the end, it's because they wanted a different looking villain, so why make them Romulans? It's the same argument. I think in that case it works a bit better because you have more of a, an animosity between them and Spock that's sort of earned by the previous storylines with, with Spock and the Romulans. Whereas this, like, Khan, it's like he wasn't shot into space, right? They found him on the planet, so it didn't have to be, it didn't have to be Khan. It was like, I don't know. That I really think me. he was he was trying to do it so that people would feel familiar. Yeah, so they'd say, oh, yeah. Khan movie. But and yeah, that would Khan's... excite people because Khan is such a popular But then movie. they hid that in all the, the trailers and stuff. Yeah, but, they, but and then they leaked it, again, <laughs> right. quote, quote, quotation. Yeah, no, it was silly. The new the new con's motivation was just save his people, right? Yeah. So save his people. What's wrong with that? <laughs> we save people all the time in Star Trek. I mean, sure, maybe there's some reintegrate. Like maybe it turns into space seed all over again. Yeah. There's some reintegration problems, but like new con just didn't have the the chops of a villain. He didn't live up to the yeah, original con. No. Absolutely not. And I, I don't think we would have as much of a problem with it if he had just been John Harrison and we're like, oh, he sounds kind of like the storyline He could have been somebody from Section 31. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that would have worked. Yeah, no, making him con, like, the, the reason to bring back con is because he has such a personal thing against Kirk yeah. that they butt heads. But if that, the reason for that hasn't happened yet, there's not that much to that villain. Okay. That's what I was trying to get at. His thing is revenge against Kirk. Yeah. If there's no reason for him to have revenge against Kirk, there's no real character there. Except for, like, a thespian actor. (laughs) However, all that aside, Benedict Cumberbatch did a great job, I thought, of just, of playing an evil person who, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. no, if he wasn't con, nobody would have complained. He'd just been a cool villain. And he was a good villain. Might need a cooler name than John Harrison, (laughs) but, yeah, he was a cool villain. And Space Seed, like you were saying, uh, about, you know, Khan's motivation being revenge, in Space Seed... He's an okay villain. Well, it's an okay episode. He's a good, good villain. He brings a lot of gusto. But the episode itself isn't that memorable. No, it's not. 
it's it's like what like the incident happens between the episode and the movie. Yeah, right. We see him in the movie. Now he's boiling for revenge, and that's, that's what made cool... Space Seed such a great episode was because it was the origin story right. for the. Wrath but of on its own, it's just a silly like these magic people are taking over the ship. Yeah. But now they're not because they came up with a plan to and stop And his them. chest. Yeah, <laughs> and, and, and the incredible chest of Ricardo Montalban. Yes, Ricardo Montalcon. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so shall we do our number one? Yes, please. Our number one, my number one, is <laughs> not John, not uh, not Riker, is uh, Gal Dukat. Oh, okay. Gal Dukat, a Cardassian, played by Marco Lemo. Back to DS Nine. Back to DS Nine. <laughs> and sort of next generation, kind of. Well, he played a Cardassian in Next Generation, but he wasn't Gal Dukat. He yeah. was Gal Maset, yeah. and he but was basically the same character. I mean, if you yeah. watch it, he had a mustache though, and that I don't remember. But he <laughs> he had one of the great scenes with Picard, which was when Picard turns his back on them yeah. in the uh, conference Love room. Love that episode. Great episode. So good. He's the yeah the first Cardassian. And then later on, the best Cardassian. Yeah. Well, he appeared from the pilot to the final episode. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He was oh. the bad guy throughout. Throughout. And the thing was, is he was a bad guy. And like you were saying about Kai Wen, in his mind, he was not a bad guy. Yeah. And he could go from being a genocidal, homicidal maniac to being a kind and caring father. He had so many aspects. Well, he to didn't his go from one to the other, he was both. Yeah. He adored his daughter. Kill the egg. But he set out to find her in order to kill her. <laughs> yeah, but then he can't. Yes. And he learns to love her. But while he's in love, he's still this monster. But he's always on the wrong side of everything. He's on yeah. the wrong side of the Cardassian government always. When he was in the um, legate in charge of Bajor when it was occupied, and they had all the slave labor camps, he tried to improve conditions on in the slave labor camps by like giving them extra rations and stuff. And imagine the slaves didn't appreciate it, and it drove him mad because he yeah. really thought he was being a good person. He was going to make those slaves' lives easier. How, how dare they not appreciate him? The man deserved, yeah, he was constantly just didn't understand. He didn't get it, and he committed countless atrocities. He used the Bajoran women as concubines, which is how he ended up having his daughter, Ziel. But he was always underappreciated, and he started the War of the Dominion. Yeah. He negotiated a deal with the, the Dominion yeah. and took DS9 and basically started the entire war. Mm-hmm. Um, and and all of it just because, at that point, because he just felt like he deserved to be in charge again. That was his space station. He had been demoted. his planet. Yeah. Yeah. And he didn't deserve it. And the whole universe was working against him. His performance, I can't understand why that actor hasn't gone on to do great things. He hasn't gone on to do anything. He was on an episode of Family Guy. There you go. <laughs> um, he, and on, and then in many, many episodes, he worked alongside the Federation. He fought yeah. the Maquis with them. That's he a, was the one who uncovered the the thing in the Klingons with the fact that the Dominion had infiltrated them. Okay, right with uh, with Martok. Yep. Uh, so I mean, he he would he could play so many different aspects of his character all so well. But they were all part of the same thing. Yeah. Like every every time it looks like he's doing something good. In the end, it's always just for him. It's always to benefit him. It's always an it's to, agenda. It's to yeah. impress someone else so that he looks better. It's right. A lot, you know, for a while, he has that obsession with Kira. When you're living on the station during the occupation, he uses, like, he wants her to be in his life to be like a mother figure for Zial, for his daughter. Yeah. Meanwhile, like, he's, you know, he's the Hitler to her race's Jews. Like, he, <laughs> yes. Yeah. And she hates him, and she hates him, but he keeps like, come, just come be nice to... Well, yes, we hate each other, but Zial's nice, and you like her, and maybe I'll grow on you too. And she almost buys it a couple times. That's one of my favorite tropes in fiction. The the bad guy who sort of becomes a good guy for a little while, like like Magneto and the X-Men yes. stuff. or And he uh, does it repeatedly. Yeah, and I love those things, and it always disappoints me when he goes evil well, again. Well, and he but, kills Jadzia Dax, who was one yeah. of my favorite characters, just because she was in the way. Yeah. There wasn't a long-standing plot, or it, he was going that way, and she was in his way. And that's and... it. When, when he's like turning good, he's not really like right. he's just he has this crush on Kira, so he sets up this whole thing, and he's basically using his daughter as like a chip to right. lure her in. And there's that scene like he buys Kira the dress. 
and has it done. And Kira takes it and she looks at it, and it's a nice dress. And she looks at herself in the mirror, and then she realizes what, like, what she's and doing. Throws the dress away. <laughs> he was so capable of doing all of that. And then in the end was perfect. The way they wrote him in the end, he and Cisco plunge to their deaths in the fire caves. Right. But Cisco ends up going to the prophets. <laughs> And he ends up being trapped in the fire caves with the paw wraiths for all eternity. Yeah, basically right. burning in hell. <laughs> he very literally goes to hell. A yeah. little on the nose, maybe. But and I just, it was a beautiful story arc because it went from the beginning to the end. Right. And he was a magnificent it's portrait. A, the constant rivalry between him and Cisco is fantastic. It's, Cisco always has the thing, he has a baseball. He's always death. tossing yeah. those. And when they're forced to abandon the station, he leaves the baseball behind. And for that whole season, Ducat is playing with the baseball. Yeah. Like, just because he knows. Yeah. And they have this these constant... Commu- like, like, they're talking to each other, even before the station falls, across the line, just taunting each other and being snarky to each other. When he loses the station and Zial gets killed... Oh, he loses he, his he mind. He loses his mind and goes insane. You actually feel sorry for him. That's why... That's one of the reasons he's so great. Cause, yeah. Because yeah. he charms you. And the culmination of that arc... Is when he's having that, like he's trying to make Cisco understand why he's a, like, why he feels oppressed. He's trying to tell him, like I tried to help the the Bajorans, and they turned against me, and everyone turned against me, and no one recognizes how amazing I am. He's going on the whole rant, and he's crazy. He thinks Wayun is there, but he's right. not. He's having visions, yeah. yeah. And it, it, he's like, literally, I think the line is like, he's explaining to Cisco why he's not an evil man. And Cisco says, oh yeah, they didn't appreciate you. You should have punished them. And Ducat's all, I should have wiped them all out. Which have just scoured Bajor and killed all of them. That's, that's what they deserve. That's what they earned. Like, he plays that so, and he's, till the end, he's 100% convinced that he's absolutely right. Yeah. And everyone yes. is working against him. It's from one thing to another. He's extremely spooky. <laughs> and it's it's a brilliant portrayal, like I said, by uh, by Mark Alamo. They don't give Emmy Awards to science fiction shows. No. They just no. don't. No. It's but, not right. Especially not 20-year-old science fiction yeah. shows. I mean, it. Orphan Black got yeah. a Golden Globe. Yeah. And that's Nominee, a, nomination. Not uh, a right. win, a nomination. But even that was huge. Yeah. But he, this man this man should have gotten countless yeah. Awards for yeah. his performance in, in DS9. So measured, you know. Sometimes Cisco could be over the top, but Gul Dukat was never anything less than authentic, I yeah. think. And, and just never out of character. Yeah. Everything was a, a brilliant performance so, of this evil lunatic. This list just proves that <laughs> DS9 <laughs> is an excellent Star Trek series. That's true. You can't argue that. It's I, people will argue that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, I'm, I know I'm in the minority, but I really don't understand it. I don't understand why people aren't more fond of this show. I think it had a bit of a rough start, as my guess, and in the first couple seasons, like every show does. But because it was living in the shadow of Next Generation, which wasn't quite as at its peak at that point, but was still way ahead of most other TV shows. It a lot of people were disappointed with it and never gave it another chance. Yeah, I remember thinking it's weird. There's a Star Trek show and none of the people from the Enterprise are on it. That was hard to get used to. Yeah, yeah. and the first episode, like they overlap a little. Like Picard and Cisco talk to each other, and the Enterprise D is there for a bit. Yeah, and then they just go off to do their own thing. And that's not Star Trek, right? Like, yeah, it took and they a while. rarely had crossover. Well, Worf eventually came on board. Yeah, brilliant but choice. They had the uh, I think Riker showed up. Evil Riker. No, Evil Riker Thomas showed up. Riker. Yes, yeah, Thomas yeah. Riker his, uh, shows fake up. Fake sideburns. Ah, oh, the best dramatic <laughs> reveal ever, where he tears off his fake sideburns. <laughs> <laughs> so good. In any case, our time is about up. Uh, you had some quick honorable mentions. Oh, I had a c- couple of quick honorable really mentions fast? just because that they were really interesting characters. Was one of them was Kivas Fajo from Star Trek: Next Generation. Most Toys was played by Saul Rubinek, right, the, the antique collector who wants yeah. to kidnap Data because of how rare he, he is. Was- a last-minute replacement for yes. another actor who, who had tried to kill himself. Like, yes, that's uh, like, a whole other story. But the one, the thing that I liked the best about him was, the fa- other than the fact that he was just so cold and and awful. And I mean, he killed, you know, his uh, one of his employees, Varia, with the Veron T disruptor, which was <laughs> the, apparently the most painful way to die ever. Right, just to prove a point to Data. To just, but the fact that he managed to elicit an emotional outburst in Data. Okay. Because arguably, our, well, okay, it was yeah. never resolved. <laughs> but he killed Varya in front of to prove the point to Data, and Data was so 
outraged as an android could possibly be, and he pulls out his phaser, and and Car- mm-hmm. Kivas Vajo says, you're not going to shoot me, and they start to beam him out. Right, and O'Brien and says... In transport, yeah, well, the phaser it looks phaser like it's on. Discharged. Yeah. So they turn it off and beam him in, and Data goes, oh, must have been something weird happened yeah. in the transporter. Data just and, whistles out the room. And we never know, <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, And the other one was um, Nora Sati from the episode The Drumhead. Uh, Gene oh, Simmons yeah. plays yeah. her as the Grand Inquisitor. The yes. witch hunt episode, the witch yeah. essentially. Hunt episode. Yeah. Um, basically reminiscent of the McCarthy era. Again, she does, she chews the scenery. yeah. Yeah, she's great, and I, I, that that episode, the writing in that episode, like she's she's good. But again, it's Picard's interaction with her that, that well, sells that. If you watch it again, you'll see the things she lists that Picard has done. We all know the the backstory yeah. to all of those things, but if you didn't know. Yeah. It would sound like he was a traitor to Starfleet. If it came through on like the the Earth Star on my my yeah you know, absolutely iPad. yeah or at a witch trial yeah yeah which is exactly which is exactly what it is and Picard has that great speech where he calls her out on it quoting her father the yeah. famous judge yeah and she oh, flips leave out leave my father's name out of this yeah, yeah. <laughs> anyway she I was just, great she was great yeah and that's my list and that's the list. Okay, well then, special thanks to Dizini, to my mom, for coming on the show to be with us. Thank you for having me. <laughs> and uh, you've been listening to Geek Top 5. Special thanks to Ben Sound for our theme song, Creative Commons Use. Special thanks to Stella, Stella Simeonova for putting all this online where you can see it. And uh, thanks to you for tuning in. If you want to send us a message, we can be reached at geektop5 at gmail.com we are available on twitter at geektop5 and we're on facebook at facebook.com slash geektop5 just a quick note that if you do want to send us anything saying that DS9 wasn't the best Star Trek your comment may be deleted because you're wrong (laughs) and I appreciate it (laughs) (laughs) thanks folks we'll talk to you again in just a couple weeks 